And then when we're reading from the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 13. So Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, it remains for some to enter, and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and for, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. A gracious and most loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we come each week to this place to sing praises, to pray, to exhort and encourage one another, and to hear you and your words speak. And so I pray, Lord, now as we open your word together, would indeed assist me to proclaim the wonders of your grace and your name, your holiness, for the seriousness of life in you and life outside of you. And Lord, if there be any heart here today that is hardened, including my own, Lord, would you indeed incline our hearts to hear and to believe and to strive. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Good morning to our visitors here and also those online and those that will listen to the podcast online later, especially our friends in America, in Columbus, 
Um, it's been freezing there, but it's been hot here. Um, welcome to you all. Last time I stood here was a few weeks ago and we looked at James and I learned afterwards that the clock battery uh, was a little bit off and it did 30 minutes in 56. So you got a very long message. Um, I'm just hoping that it hasn't been replaced, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe it has. Sorry, Sam, it has. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, we're back in Hebrews. It's been a long while. I think uh, maybe the beginning of December when we were last in it together. And um, apologies, there's been such a, a big delay um, being away and so on. But we're back in it again. And I want to remind us, as I always do, when we get back into Hebrews, it's about three fundamental things. And I wanted to test you, but it's been so long, I felt that was a bit unfair. Firstly, the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is greater he is better, his prime position in the universe is the primacy, the supreme majesty. And the Bible in Hebrews especially expounds on that and how he is better than the old types and figures in the Old Testament. Secondly, it's a book that encourages us to persevere, to endure and run the race that's set before us because we need to endure, don't we? We need to run. We need to keep on keeping on. And thirdly, it's a book of warnings. And they're warnings. They're terrifying. And we've got one today. It's a biggie. This is a really hard passage to open up and ignore <laughs> the warning. In fact, I'd say it's impossible. We've got a very large section of scripture here, so I will break it down to just a few parts. We'll get the, hopefully the general um, noise or sound or purity that comes from the word. We'll drill into specifics. And it's a warning. We've already had a warning. If you remember in chapter two, after talking about the supremacy of Christ, his radiance of the glory of God, he's the one speaking now, his exact imprint of God's nature and so on. The writer says, we therefore must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away and somehow fail to obtain so great a salvation. There's a big warning. And today's warning chimes in with that around hearing and listening, but it adds a dimension that isn't there in that first warning, and that is about the human heart, the condition that we need to have to hear. And the condition that, sadly, those that don't hear and disobey, disobey have. Um, and the book is about to go on and do that supremacy comparison, as I like to call it. Because say Moses was like this, the Lord Jesus was like that. The old covenant was like this, the new covenant's like this. The high, great, uh, sorry, the high priest was like that, the great high priest in Christ was like that. The king was like that, the king in Christ was like that, and so on. And he started that work already by talking a little bit about Moses. And he's going to take a bit of a segue away from that to consider the church in light of the first reference. So I'll just remind us of the message that we looked at last time, we heard last time, was about how Moses was given a great task in the church, in the, I should say, in the house of God. I think uh, Israelites like the word church. And that, that is that he was the servant in the church. But Jesus, being better, was the son over the house of God. The one is a servant in the church or in the house, and the other is the son over it. And the one that's over it isn't the one inside it serving. The one who's over it is the one who owns it. The son inherits the church. And then he goes on to say it concerns the church, concerns us. So this book written in probably AD 60 refers to the church then, but it refers to Chapel Street and St. Mark's and all the other churches. And Christ is head over the church. And so we should hold fast. There's a, there's a persevering bit of language. Our confidence in the faith, our confidence in Christ, and actually our boasting a hopeful boasting in the hope that there is in Christ. And that's the context that we come in to this passage today. In Hebrews 3 and a little bit of 4, 
to understand then if, if Christ is head of the church and he's faithful over it, then what should we be like as the body? Or if indeed the Bible's very clear about it, the bride of Christ. You're the bride. We're the bride of Christ. We're his bride. So what's our faithfulness, faithfulness like in the context of that? And I've got to say, it's a shuddering truth. It's terrifying. And I'm quite certain that this message will upset some of you. I make no apology for that, unless I'm being rude, in which case you ought to pull me up. But please speak to me after if you struggle with this, if it sticks in your craw, as they say, where I'm from. And probably say here as well. And if you take nothing else away from this message, there's three fundamental things I want you to take away. So I'll tell you what they are right now. So you can say, well, I took those away. Firstly, there is a resting place. There is a place that we're going to that is a resting place. It's a final, eternal resting place, and we call it heaven. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. There's going to be peace. There's going to be rest of our weary bones. We're going to be recreated. There'll be no more sin. It's a real thing. If we believe in Christ, that's the trajectory we're on. We're headed to the resting place. Secondly, we need to strive. Did you see it in the text? We need to strive to enter it. Not just to sit back in the cozy armchair of life and say, well, you know what? It's all good. God's going to get me there. There's this real emphatic um, call to strive to enter that rest. Now, we need to be careful here because the text is not saying your striving will get you to heaven. What it's saying is your striving will demonstrate something of your belief in Christ, which will get you to heaven. That's the outworking of, of works, fruit. So firstly, there is a resting place. Secondly, we must strive to enter it. And thirdly, You've got everything you need to strive. Did you know that? You can get everything you need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Second Peter. You've everything you need to strive. So what I want to do to try and handle this passage is to go straight to the warning. I've got it in our minds, and then I'll recover the rest of the text, and we'll come back to the warning, and we'll work on some application. So let's go straight to the warning. Now, the warning's kind of in two parts. It's got a kind of general part, and then it's got a specific part. The specific part sits under the general part. So I'll take us there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Follow along with me. I did ask you all to bring your Bibles last week, so I hope you have. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer says, Therefore, which follows the bit about the Lord Jesus being over the house as a son faithfully. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And there's the first general part of the warning. God is speaking. How are you going to respond? The hard heart, the closed, impenitent, impenetrable heart or a soft heart open this is a general warning if he speaks don't harden your heart and this is really important to the writer you know why because he says it again in verse 15 he, he says as it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion that same verse comes straight out of psalm 95 written by david so he has to say it again and guess what he says it again. Down in chapter 4, verse 7, again, the writer says, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, the psalmist, so long afterwards, so long after the rebellion in the wilderness, in the words already quoted, he's even saying, look, I've already said this, <laughs> but I'm going to say it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We've all had hard hearts various things haven't we? we might today have a hard heart towards somebody what the text is saying here is do you have a hard heart towards god god's speaking to some extent at the very least he's speaking through creation the bible says that 
declares his glory. Paul talks about creation demonstrating his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. So you can understand that there is a God by what is seen. But he's also speaking through his word by his spirit. One of the things I love about Chapter Street is we're saturated in the word. I never know what's coming. He's going to you know, bring bring the word at, at communion or, or in the leading or in the actual opening of the word or in prayer. He's speaking. That's one of the reasons we come here to hear him speak. But there's a much more specific warning in this text that's linked to this hard heart problem. It's just down there in verse 12 in chapter 3. And it's a much more specific expression of the warning. And the specific warning is this, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Sounds like a warning. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see the perseverance there? Hold our original confidence firm to the end. We're going to come back to this, but that's it. There's the warning straight out there. Do you find that scary? It's a, it's a serious warning, isn't it? No? <laughs> I think it is. Very serious. All right, well, let's understand the context of these hard hearts. As I've already said, the writer is referring to Psalm 95, written by David, which refers to the events that we read today in Numbers 14. And in case you're unfamiliar with the history of this, I'll just take us through a potted version of it. So Israel, whose name is Jacob, who's renamed Israel, has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And their, their land goes into famine, but God has ordained providentially a way of getting them into another land, which is kind of full of prosperity. And that happens through God's providential work through Joseph. You know the story. They all move down to Egypt. Do you know how many there are when they go in? The Bible actually tells us. 72. Some versions say 75, but 70 something. Not very many of them go down into the land of Egypt. And 430-odd years later, there's over a million of them. But they're no longer in a land of plenty. Well, it is still a land of plenty, but they're not benefiting from it. They've now become slaves. They're totally enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they're mistreated terribly. And to them, it might seem that God has somehow abandoned them after leading them into this place. And then God sends a prophet, Moses. Amazing story. If you don't know it, read it. It's, it's phenomenal. And through Moses, God brings about plagues and miracles and the first Passover, which obviously is reenacted until Christ becomes the full Passover lamb. And he redeems them. He frees them from the land of slavery and takes them out across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And there they stay for 40 years. And what I want you to know straight away is that wasn't where they were meant to go. Or at least that wasn't where they were meant to stop, was it? They were on the trajectory to the promised land. What the Bible calls the, the place of rest, the promised place of blessed rest, which has a, a literal sense for them in terms of a physical location, but also a figurative sense in terms of our eternal destination. So they didn't come out of there from slavery to just stomp off for 40 years in the wilderness. Their plan, under God's direction, was that they were going back to the promised land, which was promised. So surely they were going back there. But they disobeyed God. You see, the people of Israel are, by being the people of Israel, the house of God. It's an ethnic house of God at that point. And that faith that they have in God exists in the whole Israel model of, aton of atoning sacrifices, of the law, of the customs, and the, the um, festivals. So they were, perhaps by nature, 
faithful men and women of God, but the reality is they lost their faith somehow. You know how we know that? Because they became disobedient. And the text is talking about the relationship between faith and obedience here. You know the story, Moses went up the mountain. You know, the, the Israelites had everything. They've seen all the miracles. They've been fed with a pillar of um, smoke at night, fire at night, and, and smoke during the day. And God directed them around the wilderness. Had everything they needed. When Moses went out up the mountain, after a while, they kind of thought, well, you know what? This isn't really working. Moses hasn't come back. God's obviously deserted us. So what did they do? They disobeyed God. Drunkenness, orgies, debauchery, and they even made a golden cup and worshipped it. In the context of that, God says, they're not coming in. They're not coming in to the promised land, the place of rest, which I promised. And Moses kind of entreats God, doesn't he? Uh, and no, you know, you said you're a good and faithful God. And he says, yes, that's right. I'm also just. And this generation will not come in, which, by the way, includes Moses. Did you know that? Moses doesn't get into the promised land. He gets to see it from afar, which I think is beautiful. And so God keeps them where they are and they die failing to repent there's a, there's a remnant obviously the next generation and so on that do get in you know about joshua and caleb who get get them get the guys across as it were into that land their hearts were hardened against god and so they never entered their rest because hard hearts towards god just brings wrath, just brings judgment, Romans 2. Do you presume, perhaps this is, is apt for the Israelites in that, in that context, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, to render to each one according to his work. That's the situation of the hard hearts in Israel. The writer of Hebrews is invoking that memory. God spoke. People disobeyed. They had a hard heart. Because faith is linked to obedience. If I can put it this way. Disobedience is linked to unbelief. And so they stayed in the wilderness. So let's jump back to our text in Hebrews 3 for a second and pick it up in verse 16. So we can actually hear that kind of concluded. The writer says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Wasn't it those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, i.e. they never made it to the promised land? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. These were the people of God. They didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief and the evidence of their unbelief was disobedience it's disobedience you might say okay well what does this really have to do with us then bit of a history lesson mr writer of the hebrews what does it have to do with us well i want to say it has everything to do with us because it begs the question doesn't it do i really believe <laughs> Where's my obedience at, at stake? What's going on with my obedience or disobedience? It's not enough, is it, to say we're okay as a Christian? We come to Christ, we give our, our hearts, all the language that we use, to Christ, right? We give our faith to him, we trust him. But is there anything actually changed in our lives? Because we can say all kinds of things, right? Say anything we want. I can stand here and say anything I want. But the question is, do I believe it? Is it true? Has it made a difference to me? Is there something active about it? 
We come to church, we claim to be believers, we pray, we preach, we go to Bible studies, we sing praises. I love singing. I'm a terrible singer, but I love singing to my God, to our God. Do you love singing? Good, because you're pretty ordinary at singing too. No, just kidding. But we could do that every week and still not know Christ. We could do that every week and claim to know Christ, but have a totally disobedient life. And we can hide that from one another. But we can't, as we heard in that text, hide from God. Because the true, faithful Christian life must be accompanied by faith that works out to obedience. Strives for good fruit. Strives for good works because of real faith. And I'm not saying for a second that we're all going to do this perfectly at all. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to strive. <laughs> We've been no striving, we just have it together. But there's this fight, this battle, this um, wrangling, I think the word would be, to get there. So let's get back to the warning so we can understand how to deal with this problem um, and question where we're at with this. And I want us to see what the basic problem is in this. Just a couple of points on that. And I want you to see that in this very text is the solution to how we strive. So let me read the text again. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Sorry, we're jumping around so much. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So problems, solutions. God doesn't just describe the, all the problems. He gives us the solutions to it, to them. So just look at two simple problems. And there are many more, but we'll just look at two here. The first one is simply, we have e people have evil, unbelieving hearts. And that's the nature of everyone before they come to Christ. They have an evil, unbelieving heart. Nobody looks for God. Nobody searches for him. No one is righteous. No one turns up and says, hey, I believe in God from birth. I'm completely righteous. Evil and unbelieving hearts that fall away from the living God. Now, I want to just clear up something really quickly here. As often a debate comes around from time to time in churches about whether it's possible to be a real Christian and then to fall away and not be a Christian. And the answer is no, it's not. It's not what the Bible teaches. And we'll see it again in Hebrews. And when we look at the next section or another time, it kind of echoes again and again throughout the book. And I know that here because it says evil, unbelieving hearts that fall away. It doesn't say believing hearts that fall away. Now, I know some people can, as it were, fall away for a time and then be restored. That's a different thing. But you can't be a genuine, solid believer and leave Christ. John says that those who went out from us went out, and as they left the church, because they were not of us. They were not believers. So that's the first problem. Hearts that are evil do not believe God and so fall away from the living God. And the second problem is verse 13 there. The hearts are hardened by the deceitful of sin. And what I want you to know is if you're a Christian and you're engaging in sin, I know we're all sinning, but if you're actively engaging in sin, take note. It's hardening your heart. There's a deceit in this that is saying to you, you know, it's okay. You can run around in the paddock of grace and do as much sin as you want because God's grace is sufficient. The Bible says don't crucify Christ again. And a contempt for the cross of Christ. Be really careful with that whole idea. The hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because hearts do what? lie they lie to one another and worst of all they lie to ourselves see i am by nature a sinner and that sinner wants anything but god i'm regenerated in christ but i'm still living in the old flesh 
there's a war at work. The heart is lying, deceiving. What is the passage? The heart is deceitful above all things, all things, and desperately wicked. It's a shame when we memorize that verse that we don't memorize the next one. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. If you think about it, the desperate, deceitful, wicked heart invests in what fruit? The fruit of itself. <laughs> That's the problem. Evil, unbelieving hearts fall away from the living God. And hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, okay, what's the solution? I said the solution is in the text, and I think it is. And there are many more. I've got four points to bring up in the solution. Or maybe it's three, no, four. Firstly, let's again look at Hebrews 3.12. Same passage. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, what's the solution in that? You might say, well, there isn't one. Well, take care. Take care. Take heed. Pay attention. This isn't a joke. This is a real issue. Don't come to church glibly forgetting this. What is your life really like? Take care. Listen up. You're on thin ice if you think you're a believer and you continue in sin to the extent that your heart becomes hardened. Don't think for a moment that you can claim Christ as your own and salvation, the endless rest of the promise and live a disobedient life. It's not possible. And don't think for a moment I'm talking about what we might call the big sins. I know that all sin is big. We die because of the smallest sin. By nature, that is our problem. We are sinful. And we're put to death because of that. The Bible makes that clear. But I'm not talking about the biggies, right? Murder. And add to the list in your mind, like those biggies. Because there isn't anyone here that's done those things, I don't think. I don't know, but I don't think so. But I'm talking about those subtle ones. Pride. Anybody here not suffer from pride? Fear of man? What about what I call gentle hatred? Oh, I don't really like that person <laughs> because of X, Y, and Z. That's what I call gentle hatred. Well, that's the love, love, love. It's a terrible sin. Hidden lust, greed, coveting, lying. Take care. Take care. Be reasonable with yourself about this. I told you this was a hard message. Be reasonable. Take care. It's thin ice. Solution number two, though, is a bit different. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'll just deal with this phrase as long as it is called today, because people do have some funny interpretations. It's, it's just rhetoric. It simply means today, <laughs> now, all the time, because today is always called today. Tomorrow is tomorrow. Yesterday is yesterday. So today is today. Does that make sense? So it's just saying, exhort everyone all the time, right? Every day. And that's the solution. Exhort one another. Exhort one another. Bring an exhortation to one another. Well, the word exhort literally means to encourage or to urge someone to do something. And the text here is saying, urge one another to do something. So the question is, what is the doing that I have to do or be urged in? The answer is simple. It says in the text, not to be hardened by sin. 
exhort one another not to be hardened by sin. That means we need to know one another, doesn't it? Because if we don't know one another, we don't know what's going on in someone's life, and we don't know how to exhort them not to be encouraged, not to be have their heart hardened by sin. Literally, brother, sister, I know this is happening in your life, and I care for you. I care for your salvation. I care about whether your faith is real. I want to exhort you not to do such and such, whatever it may be. Stop sinning. Strive against sin, brother. Strive against it. Now, I'm very lucky uh, in that I have a wife who's very good at exhorting me in that way, quite genuinely. She's rolling her eyes at me right now, but it's true. And she's able, by God's amazing grace, to put a finger on sins that I'm oblivious about. And she encourages me. What kind of a Christian does this? Well, is that really a Christian? Now, again, I'll just remind us, I'm not, su not suggesting that we do everything perfectly. We can eradicate sin. And it'll be with us until the end. When we are made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And James, if you remember. But I'm suggesting that we do need to lay our hands on people that we know and love. And be faithful friends. You know that proverb? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. But we also need to be faithful receivers of exhortation. Right? If I didn't tell you that, you'd all go around exhorting one another and not receiving. So if we're exhorting someone, we need to do it with what? Gentleness, patience, kindness, love, peace. Sound familiar? Sound like the fruits of the Spirit? Knowing that we are no better. And if we are being exhorted to fight and strive to enter the rest, then we need to be humble and honest and genuine about it. Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, let us consider, let's think about it. Let us consider how to stir up one another. It's actually a very tough phrase in the Greek there. Let's, let's stir one another up to love and good works or good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together. What's that about? That's the church, isn't it? Well, why not forget it? Well, because it's the place where we get start to get to know one another, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, let me tell you, it's hard to get to know people in a big church. You go to a church of four or 500 people, you only have a friend group of 10, 20 at the most. So we, we have no excuse. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, listen, but encouraging one another, one another all the more. As you see the day approaching, what's that day? The Lord's coming. I'm going to judge. So let's get busy stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Now listen to this. He then says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if we really believed that, we would stir one another up. We would. We really would. And I encourage you to do that. Take care. Exhort one another to love and good deeds, to strive, to enter the rest. Solution number three is just a simple one. Just down there in chapter four, verse one. I don't know if you saw it. Therefore, in view of the, the Israelites who failed, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, in other words, that promise is there for us, hasn't gone away because the Israelites failed. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Take it seriously. This is a big deal. I don't know whether you're all saved. I'm not thinking of any individuals, but I don't know. So we need to know. We need to get to encourage and exhort one another. You need to do the same with me. Fear God. We should live in fear of God and for fear of one another's salvation. I'll tell you now, 
um, in 2014, uh, a, a number of friends actually, in, in the light of rebellion in my own life, approached me and said, you don't look like you're striving. <laughs> it was Hebrews that saved my life. It was God that saved my life. It was Hebrews that spoke to me about it. You don't look like you're striving. You don't look like you've got any reverence or fear. You're not really taking care. You, you, you know all this stuff. It's smart. Yeah, whatever. But is it living in you? It doesn't look like it. And they really challenged me. They laid their hands on my shoulder. Give me a shake. A stir up. It changed my life. So grateful. Take care. Exhort one another to strive against in fear. God. Finally, solution number four. When you hear God's voice, have an open heart. Have a soft heart. Not a hard one. I find it interesting that the passage that we're looking at today begins with this problem of God speaking and hard hearts not listening. We, we learn in, in one part of it, I forget exactly where it is, that uh, the faith of the Israelites was not joined to those who listened because <laughs> they had hard hearts. There were clearly some that didn't, that listened and obeyed. And it's interesting it starts with that and this passage ends with the word as well. It ends with the significant power of the word of God to soften our hearts. Let's have a look. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, just through to the end of that section. Let us, in view of everything that's been said, let us therefore strive, there it is, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those people in the wilderness. Let's strive for the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit or joints and of marrow. And no creature's hidden. Oh, sorry, Mr. Bit. Joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's interesting that the, the biggest antidote to not listening to the word of God is listening to the word of God. It's not rocket science. Really listening to it. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, longs for you to know the word of God, doesn't he? It's the way he speaks. He writes this stuff. My thoughts any good? Not really. Are God's thoughts good? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because they can change me. They can soften my heart. They can make me obedient. Notice it says living. It says active. Living things need a place to dwell. Let the word of Christ abide in you. Richly dwell in you. Same word. Thinking of John, I think it's 15, where the Lord talks about us abiding in him in the vine, you know that picture? We abide in him and he abides in us. And then he says, if my word abides in you, it dwells there in you. Ask whatever you want, it shall be given to you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's, that's what the word is going to do if we let it dwell in us richly. So it lives. It's active. It's not dumb. It's not mute. It doesn't return void according to God's sovereign will. It does something. And if you think of the fundamental things that it does, number one, it shows me how amazing God is, how beautiful he is, how holy he is, how wrathful he is, how righteous he is, how compassionate he is, how gracious he is. Doesn't it tell you all about him? And you see that perfectly in who? Jesus Christ. Where? On the cross. On the cross. Grace, mercy, peace. Compassion, victory, justice, wrath, righteousness, all there. But it also tells us what we're like. And James tells us not to read the word and see ourselves as in a man looking at his face in the mirror and then immediately walks away. He forgets what he looks like. Now read the word and recognize that it tells you who God is and who we are and what we're like, how much we need him. It's living, it's active, and it says it can 
appears. Did you see that? And it can divide soul and spirit and joint and marrow. I once got into a rather interesting debate with a guy uh, some years ago in the 90s. And the debate and the argument was about the difference between soul and spirit. <laughs> and we went to this text to try and argue. And uh, it, by God's grace, it occurred to both of us that um, whilst we don't want to argue that there isn't a difference, clearly they're very close. Because the point about the text is it can separate even those. It can split the atom of the soul and the spirit. Can you do that? Can I? I can hardly split a banana open. It's a scalpel for the heart. That's what the word of God is. It's a scalpel for the heart. It cuts it open and says, this is a stony heart. Think of Ezekiel, right? I'll replace the, the, the heart of stone you have. I'll give you a new spirit. I'll give you my spirit. And I'll get placing you a heart of flesh. If you read on, it says so that you obey. <laughs> the word of God does that. It's a scalpel for hard hearts. Oh, how much we need the word. Do you agree? We agree we need the word every day. The word produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the whole Bible, the gospel. If we allow, I really know this, if we allow the word to dwell in us richly, regularly, daily, day and night, like the, like Psalm 1, like the psalmist in, in Psalm 1, then I know that it will bring faith. I know that it will soften hearts. I know that it will change people. So to close, I wonder if you'll let me exhort you. Will you do that? Let me exhort you, because that's the command here, is to be exhorted, and I have an opportunity, and you'll, you can take the opportunity to exhort me afterwards if you want. I want to exhort you by saying, take care. Don't be fooled. Take care. Thin ice. This is serious stuff. Please take care. Don't mess around with this stuff. We're talking about our salvation. We're talking about eternal rest with God. I'm not arguing about dispensationalism or reformed theology. We're talking about salvation. The end. Let me exhort you to exhort me, to exhort one another. Gently, as I said earlier, receive exhortation with humility. A bit nervous that you'll all go around exhorting, having a go at each other. That's not what exhortation is. To love people in that. So I want to exhort you to exhort one another. Fear God. Read the word. Read the word until you know the word. And when I say know the word, I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm talking about the kind of knowing that works its way out in living. Living the word. Being changed and transformed. Read it. And, and I will say, and you know, this, this stuff's hard to say, but if you're married, uh, read the word with your spouse every day, every morning, every night. If you're men, you're commanded to do that. Do you know that? It's your job. Your spiritual headship in the family. You'll, you'll be accountable to Christ for that. Wash your wives with a re renewing of the word, regeneration of the word. Read it every morning. Read it every evening. Don't go to bed without reading the word. Why would you sleep without hearing the voice of God that can affect your heart and can bring about obedience? strive for the faith don't be deceived obey God deliver the fruits of righteousness be confessional with your close friends or your spouse about your sin and if you're already a real believer let me encourage you because this stuff's heavy isn't it do you agree it's heavy it's a hard message to give because of its heaviness if you're not a believer, let me start there, then come to Christ. Christ died for the sin of the world. He died for you, for your sin. And in coming to him, 
you will know this real faith. You will know this real um, striving. By God's grace, you'll take your place in the church as someone who is bearing fruit and is fighting and striving against the old flesh for the sake of God's glory. But if you are a Christian, it's a heavy, heavy message. And I just want to finish by encouraging you. Um, don't be deceived. But if you know Christ, you will enter the rest. In fact, if you know Christ <laughs> and you're striving and you endure, you can't help but enter the rest because Christ is the one who does that. He perfects you. And I'll leave you with this word. This is Ephesians chapter 1. I'll link it with the concept. Soft hearts, this is me, to the word of Christ can know. Not hard hearts, soft hearts to the word of Christ can know that they have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now listen carefully. In him, you also, <laughs> when you heard the word of truth, when you heard it, right? When you heard the voice of God, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you too were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You know what he's saying? Until we get to that endless eternal rest. If you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit sealed you. But make sure you're in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Again, our gracious God and Father, Lord, we just humbly pause again before you, considering, I guess in a way, Lord, what you have done for us um, through Jesus. Lord, it's so easy to fake life in Christ. And uh, dare I say, Lord, I'm sure some of us will be living a double life, which is really only one life, a dead one. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would really dwell in our hearts this week, would really um, become confessional. We'd learn, Lord, as a body of Christ to exhort one another to love and to good deeds. That we'd recognize that fruit is the real evidence of our faith. Lord, please do this work in us. Make us a people for your own possession. Lord, that others might see you and ask, who is this God that you love? And we can share the good news of Jesus. All God's people said. Amen. Thank you.